Hi, I'm Valerie Steele, Director and Chief Curator of the Museum at FIT, the most fashionable museum in New York City. Welcome to our Fashion Culture podcast series, featuring lectures and conversations about fashion. If you like what you hear, please share your thoughts on social media using the hashtag #FashionCulture. Hi, Robin. Thank you so much for being with Fashion Culture today. Um, it's only a few weeks till the election, and I wonder, since we're going to talk about fashion and politics, if we could start with, is there anything we can do with fashion to get people to vote? Well, I, I think that the industry has really coalesced around um, paraphernalia, certainly, um, that is um, encouraging people to vote. And um, one of the interesting uh, pieces uh, connected to uh, the campaign, When We All Vote, which Michelle Obama is a co-founder, is this idea of using fashion as a tool for um, giving just the civic obligation to vote, the civic, the civic right to vote, um, this kind of hipster glow that fashion can you know give to so many different things and they've kind of you know encouraged a lot of brands that are known for their exclusivity or their limited drops and all of that to create merchandise connected to voting in order to make voting feel cool and hip and necessary and um, something that, you know, you'd be willing to, you know, get up at five o'clock in the morning for and wait in line in the rain because it's the best thing you could possibly do. So in that way, I do think that fashion can have an impact because it can take that sort of magic that it's so good at conjuring up around some of the most basic things and lend it to, to voting. Well, that's inspiring. So it can work. Fashion can work politically. Well, I hope so. <laughs> I think we'll, we'll discover whether or not uh, it, it worked. But I do think that, you know, fashion, like so many other parts of the culture, can communicate with um, individuals and, you know, can sort of tap into the power of that. I'm sure you've got a lot of different aspects of fashion and politics that you want to talk about, but I wonder if you could just say a few words about the kind of fashions that we saw in the Black Lives Matter protests. So I was looking through dozens and dozens of images online, and I was very struck by the, the individualistic and also very strong statements that were being made with people's clothes. Well, I feel like the, the attire of the protesters evolved as just as the protests evolved and, you know, sort of expanding in terms of um, the topics that they were addressing. I mean, I felt like in the beginning, you're right, there was this kind of um, sort of wonderful individuality in which people, it, wasn't, it didn't feel like it had this, um, you know, orchestrated um, organization behind it. It was individuals going out in, with a like mind and a like purpose. And you saw that in the wide range of the ways in which people were dressed. I mean, slowly, yeah, you started to see more of, um, you know, the t-shirts and the masks, um, you know, with slogans on them and things like that. But for the most part, I really felt like the individuality was what came through. 
Um, I was particularly struck by um, a group of protesters who decided that they were going to dress up for the protest, that they were really going to make uh, an aesthetic statement. And part of that was, you know, their way of, you know, uh, controlling the narrative and not allowing it to um, be turned into something about, you know, these unruly, thuggish protesters out there on the street. Um, you know, they really sort of claimed their, their dignity in a way that I think is really powerfully done through fashion. Um, you know, it sort of reminded me of some of the images that we've all seen from the civil rights movement, uh, where protesters were a bit more dressed up, um, you know, than they are today or typically are today. Uh, and so I thought that was really um, provocative and really powerful. Yes, the, the references to looking like the best version of yourself, I think, was resonant of the civil rights period. Yeah, and you know, and certainly, um, you know, the the protesters during the civil rights period were not all, you know, professional, you know, middle class uh, folks. I mean, there were a lot of blue collar people out there, and yet there was this element of, you know, I. I am not asking you for my dignity because I am already a dignified human. I am just, I'm declaring that publicly, you know, for all to see and demanding that you recognize that. And I think to some degree, um, you know, the Black Lives Matter protesters were making a similar statement, but, um, you know, it was sort of that 3.0. You know, there was a much greater sense of ownership in their identity, I think. And then by contrast, you have the very strange semiotics of the Boogaloo Boys. You, you do. And, you know, I, I think whether it's, um, you know, the Boogaloo Boys or uh, the white supremacist protesters that we saw in Charlottesville, um, I, I think what we are all realizing is that, you know, in our minds, we have this idea of what a white supremacist looks like or what a racist might look like. And I think with the ways in which they are presenting themselves, they are serving as a really uh, potent reminder to all of us that this idea that we have of some, you know, white hooded, sweaty person is like something that one is, um, you know, perhaps more Hollywood than the reality of 2020, you know, of 2020. Um, you know, in particular, you know, the Boogaloo Boys, uh, the Charlottesville protesters, I mean, they look like suburban neighbors. Yeah. And, you know, I think that is something that is really profound and was really eye-opening to a lot of people. Yes. yes. And, and, and I would just add that, and obviously there is an intentionality behind that. Yes. In those choices. I mean, they, they all just sort of didn't happen to turn up in, uh, you know, golf shirts. I mean, there was, the intent was that, you know, they, they look like the person next door. Yeah. 
and then the surreality of the Hawaiian shirts, which is so spoiled to me, which was such an innocent look. I mean, my dad always loved Hawaiian shirts. And, uh, you know, I look at them now and think, how can this sort of very fun image be so transformed? Well, I, I think it's also, um, you know, meant to, uh, to sow confusion and paranoia because, you know, the Hawaiian shirt it is still the Hawaiian shirt. I mean, it's still this sort of tourist garb that people, you know, buy when they visit Hawaii. And a golf shirt is still a golf shirt. And, and so taking that uh, and, and using it as, um, you know, a form of kind of, you know, insider communication, I think is, is really troubling because it really, it, it leaves people um, confused in the sense that they can't immediately identify those that pose a risk. Um, it allows those who want to, you know, completely rip apart democratic society the ability to move freely and, um, you know, do as they choose. And it also, I think, is just, you know, patently unnerving yeah. because, you know, you, you just, it creates a sense of distrust. Yeah, exactly. Well, is there anything in particular that you would like to talk about regarding politics at this very fraught moment in time? Well, you know, one of the, the things that recently I had a chance to, to write about was um, the, the um, Portland mothers and yes. Yes. Um, the way that they, you know, sort of arrived in their yellow t-shirts and yellow garb and, all of these sort of, excuse me, markers of suburbia, um, you know, the shiny bike helmets and, the, you know, the scuba diving goggles and all of that, like, you know, things plucked from the family closet from a lovely vacation. And, you know, I, when I was writing about that, a lot of it, a lot of what I was focused on was this kind of, uh, conflict, the sense of conflicting emotions that I had about both um, the presence of these mothers, these allies, and also, you know, sort of the need for their presence and the way in which they were also set apart from the protesters. You know, I, I thought it was so interesting to read these descriptions of the mothers in their yellow placing themselves between uh, law enforcement and the protesters as if the mothers were neither sort of part of the establish, establishment nor part of the protesters, that they were this completely other category that was somehow neutral. Or, and and I, I found that just to be, to, to be troubling on one level uh, and trying to figure out, you know, why we needed to do that sort of culturally as part of our conversation. Um, and also just sort of their use of, you know, yellow, this color of sort of sunshine and, you know, as their, as their choice. 
That was interesting to me too, especially following the yellow vest protests in France where yellow became more of a, an emergency color. You can see it on the highway. You won't hit that person on the highway. Um, that yellow in a way like orange being one of those vis very visible colors. And yeah. a color that people don't wear that much. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's, you know, it's sort of safe, a safety color. It's a warning color. Um, you know, it's a, a bit of a, a color of, of joyfulness to, in, mm -hmm. you know, uh, in, in many ways, it's a color of warmth and, and empathy. So it, you know, it felt like, I mean, it was, it was ripe with much, much symbolism. Yes. Um, but also, you know, this time with, um, you know, the convention, the recent political conventions, um, that have been, both of which have been, um, you know, mostly virtual. Um, you know, it's felt like the symbolism there and the use of um, sort of garments and accessories as a way of kind of underscoring messaging, um, you know, has been really fascinating to me. Um, obviously, the most uh, polarizing accessory ever probably in the history of accessories, uh, you know, the face mask. And the I thought you were say the gun. <laughs> well, <laughs> it's true. It's true. Um, but, you know, I, I'm thinking, you know, the, the face mask, which, you know, one would think that in this time would be the least politicized um, object has taken on like so, so much meaning and such a burden. And, um, you know, just watching the, the fact that, you know, the Biden campaign is very uh, overt in its use of the face mask. They are, you know, they're, they're not subtle. They're, yeah. you know, they're not wearing these, these face masks that are, you know, ostensibly meant to kind of blend in as much as possible. I mean, they are very much obvious yes. and um you know and then on the other side you know you have a president who is adamantly adamant in his refusal to wear one and um you know and his most ardent um supporters follow, follow suit regardless of what science might say um because the face mask has come to represent this kind of sort of personal freedom and liberty as, you know, on one side and then on the other side, it has come to represent, um, you know, civility and community and, um, you know, a, a willingness to sublimate one's own needs for the better for, you know, for the community at large. Well, I, I was talking to a friend of mine who's uh, a tailor, and she went to a, the house of a wealthy client who announced, you wear the face mask, but I don't. And she felt intimidated into doing it, but then she thought afterwards, I'm not going back there. It was so overt, the power play. I don't have to. I can breathe my viruses and germs on you, but you have to protect me by wearing the mask. It was, it was just astonishing. Yeah, I mean, I, that really does take my breath away. And, you know, some of it certainly is, yeah, it's, it's a power play. 
And, you know, I'm, and I'm also fascinated by this idea that it, that it is somehow removing one's freedom and liberty. And, you know, it's the kind of thing where, you know, you, you sort of want to say, you know, if you were having surgery and the doctor walked in without gloves or a surgical mask or, you know, surgical garb, you know, just strolled in in a t-shirt and jeans, would you be okay with that? I mean, you know, there's, there's this idea that liberty and freedom somehow means that you get to do whatever you want to, regardless of the ramifications for other people. Yeah. And how, how we got to that sort of extreme definition, that misguided definition, uh, and, and you know, I feel like in some ways that like you see that in a lot of attire, like you see it in the, you know, the urgent belief that comfort supersedes everything, that it doesn't matter if, you know, you're going in for a job interview or to someone's wedding or to a funeral, you should be able to wear whatever you want to wear because you have a right to be comfortable. And I feel like, you know, that sort of belief in one's own personal comfort has just, you know, it's, it's slowly seeped into everything. And in the beginning, it was very, you know, sort of like not particularly important. It was very innocuous. And it, it, all, it just sort of feels like, yeah, this is, this is the ultimate version of that. Well, it has to do, I think, too, with a, a, an idea of, of rights or desires more like versus duties to other people and that your own personal desires take precedence over anything else but when it's endangering other people's lives it, it almost becomes a kind of crazy death cult well it does and i you know i was watching like several um of the the president's rallies and one of them in particular stood out which is the one that he hosted at uh, Mount Rushmore. And one of the most striking things um, in just sort of the, the, the media prelude to his actual speech, you know, they were sort of showing the setting and where people were gonna be seated and all of that. And the chairs, uh, the individual chairs where the guests were seated were all tethered together. And part of that was, you know, sort of a, a fire marshal Thing, that when you have these loose seats that way, they are tethered together so that if people have to leave abruptly, you won't have, you know, stray chairs sort of flying all over, uh, you know, the space. But the other aspect was that these chairs were literally tethered one right next to each other so that even if you had wanted to scooch your chair over and create a bit of distance, you couldn't do that. And it was just like, they, it was just this insane, like, chain of sort of coronavirus cultishness. It was very, uh, it was so just distressing. And also the fact that, you know, masks weren't necessary and everyone was there in their full campaign gear, you know, the red hats and the very... Um, sort of rah-rah, uh, red, white, and blue plumage. And it had this feeling of 
you know, it was, it was not a group of individuals. It was just one uh, singular body cheering as one. And it was interesting because, you know, in seeing that image, you know, instead of it representing this sort of American ideal of a group of individuals working together, it presented this image of, you know, a singular idea of what it means to be American, that there was this group think, this group uh, attire, this group vision, this everything was the same. They were all sort of joined in this singular aesthetic. Well, it's like a kind of submission to the leader, a group submission that everybody sort of hands over the whole thought process or the whole superego to the leader. Uh, it's, very, it's very discouraging. Um, you see the, the dangers in a kind of uniformity of thinking that um, the abandonment of any kind of individual free will. And also in the fact that since it's been so demonstratively proved that masks do play a role in protecting people, that uh, it becomes a kind of very aggressive anti, I, I don't believe in science statement. It, it does. And it also, um, I mean, I, I also think that it's an element of, of just denial of, denial that, you know, the American vision isn't as exceptional and heroic as, um, you know, as, as it could be. Um, or, well, let me, let me go back. I mean, I, I think there is this belief in American exceptionalism. Yeah. And I think that, you know, sort of the wearing of the mask in some ways contradicts that because it suggests that there is, um, you know, that there is frailty and that there um, is, is a, a weakness that, you know, we've been infiltrated by this virus and it's dangerous. Um, and I think when, you know, people refuse to wear that mask, they're kind of, um, you know, making their statement that, um, you know, not just that the virus doesn't exist, but more so that even if the virus does exist, it can't penetrate this idea that we have of American exceptionalism and strength and perfection. So and just another form of magical thinking, however you read it, the virus doesn't exist or the virus can't touch me or any of it, but, but not rational thought. I mean, it, it is a bit of magical thinking, you know, it's the belief that I don't need a mask to protect me because I have the fact that I'm American and free to protect me. Well, and you think so many other things, I mean, you didn't, even in New Hampshire, which has live free or die, I never saw a movement that said you can't wear seatbelts. You know, when, when that was first brought in, people said, well, how can you tell me to wear a seatbelt in the car? But it's, it's 
because it's become so deliberately politicized. I don't think that it would have just emerged naturally. Well, I think it's, it's certainly, it's been deliberately politicized. It's, it's been politicized with an incredible like urgency really. And um, you know, the, um, the repercussions for not wearing a mask are, are so enormous. And, you know, the difference between obviously with, you know, sort of seat belts and bike helmets and motorcycle helmets and things like that, um, when a person refuses to wear that, uh, you know, they are risking their health and well-being. But, you know, this is a case in which, you know, an individual's refusal to wear a mask is mostly affecting other people. Yes. And, and that's what I think is the most disheartening because you know there is this sense always in the american narrative of the generosity of this country and i think that the politicization of the mask and the refusal of some people to wear it really contradicts that idea of generosity right it's this very selfish statement Is there anything else more cheery that we can talk about? <laughs> Let's talk about Ruth Bader Ginsburg's collars for a moment, shall we? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I Ruth Bader Ginsburg, um, you know, her it's it's amazing to me the way that her that, that sort of the iconography of her um, as a presence has been reduced to, you know, sort of three things, right? There's the, the judicial robe. Yes. Which, you know, speaks to her, her profession and her legal legacy. There is the collar, which speaks to her womanhood. And also the fact that she had, you know, a, such a variety and, you know, her descent collar and her majority yes. collar. Um, you know, but the fact that, you know, she wore them, you know, they were such a, a celebration and as such a, a spotlight on the fact that she was a woman and it, it was uh, expressed with such point of pride. And, you know, and then the last thing were those, those glasses, those sort of large, almost owlish like glasses that to me, um, were just a celebration, and this is a bit of a stereotype, obviously, but they were just such a celebration of intellect, of the bookworm, of, um, you know, the, the person for whom so much is uh, interior and thoughtful. And, you know, it's, it's very much, um, they were very much not sort of fashion spectacles. Uh, they, they served the singular purpose of improving her vision and also the fact that they were so large that they were, um, you know, such a, a focus whenever you looked at her. And it just, it just, when you look at those three things, they just sort of, in so many ways, summed up um, this person in the public consciousness that, um, you know, her, it was her intellect that kept captivated people, um, not this sort of superficial persona yeah. of coolness. The, her gender, 
and her sheer uh, authority yes. in her professional life. Beautiful. Um, something optimistic. Well, you know, uh, New York Fashion Week, yes. <laughs> such as it was, um, you know, I do think that the industry is struggling, is trying to like, get its footing and figure out um, the way forward as a business um, that is both viable and inclusive and relevant. But I also felt like, you know, for so many brands, they were really, uh, designers were really getting back to um, uh, the, the, those original desires that they had when they entered the industry. Yes. And for so many of them, it was just, it was the joy of making clothes and seeing people wearing those clothes. It was the pleasure of creativity. And, um, you know, so many of them just really went down that rabbit hole of creativity and, you know, sort of have this belief that, you know, when there is light at the end of the tunnel, that people are going to want to embrace the things that delighted them. And fashion was one of those things. And so I was, I was really struck by just how cheerful so many of the collections were. You know, even when, um, you know, designers were saying, okay, you know, here's your comfort. We know you want to be comfortable, like you've really gotten used to it there were still like just wonderful floral prints and bright colors. And, uh, you know, there were ball gowns and party dresses and um, just, just clothes that made you want to enjoy life again. And, and I thought that was really, that was heart, that was really heartening. That is very positive. Well, after all, I mean, despite difficulties, people do want to make themselves look special. And that sort of fashion is about making special for special occasions and feeling good about yourself. So that certainly did shine through with the collections. Yeah, you know, I was talking to, to Wes Gordon at Carolina Herrera, and you know, he was saying that one of the sort of bright spots has been in their bridal collection. And the fact that even though it's like so many weddings have been postponed or they have gone from being these elaborate affairs to something that's uh, been much more intimate, much more informal. The reality is that people still want the dress or they want, you know, the suit, the something that marks the day as special yeah. and as memorable. And I, I think that that, that, that carries through that even if people are not going to want the most elaborate extravaganza uh, to wear, they still want those pieces that help them mark moments yes. in their lives. There's no question a wedding dress is for a very liminal and important life occasion. Yeah, you know, and Tom Ford talking about how you know, when he was first able to invite, you know, two people to his house for dinner in the backyard, uh, you know, that it, the guys, they put on a proper shirt and the women pulled out, you know, some uh, embroidered caftan. Yes. It was just like this delight to be out in public again. And, and I do think that, you know, fashion is part of 
how we, um, how we aren't announce ourselves to the rest of the world. And, you know, as we get to sort of go back out into the world, I, I do think that people are going to want to be able to say, I'm here, I'm back. Yeah. Yes. Thank you, Robin. Thank you so much for being with us. This was great. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's so nice to be here. <laughs>